HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meet in Three. I, I think we should realize that we more or less have a broken food system. When 800 million of us go to bed hungry, uh, 600 million are obese, uh, we waste 30% of our food, then something is fundamentally wrong. We'll introduce you to one food waste solution happening in Asia. They introduced a system where residents were issued an electronic ID card that would open an automated bin and enable them to weigh the food waste being dropped off. And then they would be charged, you know, in a certain amount of money for the weight of that food. And we'll take a look at some of the real struggles happening closer to home. How is it possible that a meal that was perfectly fine to consume at 10.59 p.m. then becomes waste at 11 p.m.? So tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode of A Taste of the Past is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, encouraging you to eat healthfully and nutritionally. Visit bobsredmill.com to learn more about their products. And use the code TASTE25 for 25% off your order. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And I'm sure all of you are aware of the importance of setting aside green space these days with all of the urban sprawl and development that occurs, particularly in, in, around big cities. Well, one forward-thinking county outside in Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C., About 40 years ago, in 1980, it's Montgomery County. They set aside one-third of the county, that's 93,000 acres, as an agricultural reserve. It was rather remarkable, especially for being right outside of the D.C. metropolitan area and where land is at a premium. But there are more than 500 farm operations in this agricultural reserve that send food to local residents and around the world. The reserve has become a national model for land preservation and has created space for food production, but also for clean air and water and recreation and history. Two women in the, who live in Maryland, in the D.C. area, 
decided to take on this project and let other people know about it by writing a book. It's a new cookbook, but I don't want to call it just a cookbook because in addition to recipes, it's a combination of food stories and people and history stories, beautiful photography, and as I said, a lot of essays about those subjects. The book is called Bread and Beauty, A Year in Montgomery in Montgomery County's Agricultural Reserve. And the authors are Claudia Kasoulis and Ellen Letourneau. Claudia is an independent, she's a, a writer, um, a Capitol Hill writer and an editor whose freelance work covers architecture, design, cooking, and culinary history, and who worked as a land use planner in Montgomery County for more than 20 years. Ellen lives and works in the Agricultural Reserve, where she's an event planner, a weaver, and a baker. And their website is breadandbeauty.com. And that's the name of the book, Bread and Beauty. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Linda. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Well, what I would like to ask of you, Ellen, is, um, well, first of all, let's um, go to Claudia. Could you just describe a little more about this agricultural reserve? Phenomenal plan. I mean, but tell us a little bit more about it. Sure. Um, After World War II, there was a lot of suburbanization in the Washington, D.C. area. And particularly in the 50s, they started building freeways. The metro uh, train system started going out into the suburbs. And the federal government also decentralized a lot of its agencies. So as they started moving out into counties and there was a transportation connection, of course, people followed and, and followed the jobs and the housing was built. And so you started to see the farmland uh, slowly disappearing. And a lot of the farmers out there uh, recognized this and saw the change coming. And so they put their land um, in easements, which would limit um, future development. And then eventually the county said, you know, we believe that there is room for both farming and development in Montgomery County. And they came up with that land use plan that you mentioned that tied development to, um, to uh, public investment. So, for example, uh, you couldn't expand until you had the funds to pay for it. And that allowed them to set aside uh, the farmland, 93,000 acres, um, and preserve it in perpetuity for farming. The part of the way they did that was not just by buying the land, um, that would have been too expensive, or by taking the land from the farmers by simply downzoning it, that would have led to a lot of court cases. What they did was they came up with a mechanism called transferable development rights. So where the farmer at one point had the ability to build five houses on 25 acres, the, the rezoned land could now, um, five houses on 25 acres, right, they could only build one house on, five, on 25 acres. So what happened to those four houses? They could sell those development rights to a developer in the down county who could then use it to develop a property there. So that was really the, um, it was, what was groundbreaking was not only setting aside the land, but figuring out a way to do it and pay for it. Right. I mean, the growth management plan seems to be um, 
what has caught on a lot that not just uh, I know there are a lot of areas around here in New York in in the outlying um, urban suburban areas that have land set aside for agricultural use, but the fact that it's not linked, you know, that yours that one is linked to a growth management plan makes a lot of sense um, in the future, yeah. no matter what the reserve is. That's right, and um, it it you know it recognizes that there's value in land and that the farmer is um, entitled to get some of that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because I I was reading some background on it when you brought this to my notice. It was, I, I, and I'm so glad you did. I was not aware of this this agricultural reserve at all. Um, and I was reading some of the comments of the planning board at the time when they were trying to get the council or whomever to you know to vote on this. And of course, the way that so many people feel, you know that. Well, you know, yeah, you can. What you know? Well, what about developers? We're not going to. It's worth so much money. We can make so much money. Give people places to to live. Yes, but it's green space and farmland. And they and the one statement I thought was was terrific. The planning board. Somebody on the planning board stated that we cannot afford not to save this land. And I mm-hmm. think that's. I think that was that really speaks loud and clear. Well, Alan, I, I, you the two of you decided to. I guess document or pay tribute to this um, this pretty phenomenal use of land with this book. Um, how did you come to do that? What what made you decide to do a book? Well, I moved here about six years ago from the suburban Detroit area, right into the agricultural reserve, and uh, met um, all of one uh, knew all of one person when I moved here, and so I I quickly made it a mission to meet as many people as possible. And um, in so doing, I, I was all over the county talking to people about the issues in the county and found that there were so many people in the county that didn't know about this precious resource right in their backyard, hmm. just minutes from the White House. And I found that really astonishing. I think maybe because I was an outsider from another area, uh, I could see how remarkable it was. I had maybe a different viewpoint than someone who, uh, you know, lives and works here and has been born and raised here. So uh, then I started to work for some advocacy groups um, about uh, that were concerned with preserving and promoting the reserve. And as a result, they had Montgomery Countryside Alliance, one of those advocacy groups, had made a documentary film called Growing Legacy, and it was shown at the D.C. Environmental Film Festival about three and a half years ago. And as a result of that, I was introduced to Claudia. Uh, we're always looking for ways to reach out to the wider region to tell them about, you know, this extraordinary place. And in hopes that then they will choose to get involved, be stewards, or at least be aware of its existence, because once it's gone, it's gone. Mm -hmm. As we're talking, you know, if you don't protect it now, you can't change your mind later after it's been developed and turn it back into farmland. So, um, so then Claudia and I just met and thought, well, let's just do this. Um, She has It became a wonderful collaboration because I was sort of the connective tissue with the people up here, and and she has all the planning um, background and the culinary history background and the recipe development background, so it just seemed just such an ideal marriage um, and passions, and so that's what got us started. Well, as we record this show today, it's October 25th, and it is the official release day of the book, Correct. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> um, tell me, uh, so it's a self-published book. Where can listeners find information about the book and gain access to the book? 
Sure. They can go to our website, Bread and Beauty. It's uh, .org, um, breadandbeauty.org. And um, we also have it available at um, markets in the, in the reserve, uh, Waradaka Brewing Company, Soleado Lavender Farm, Rockland's Winery, and um, through other resources, we'll be at a number of different events that people can learn about on the website, and we'll have books there and designing uh, lots of outreach events to draw people out to the reserve and, and tell them about it. But they can also buy it through the website, and we can ship it out. And we'll also be at Politics and Prose, sort of a, a D.C. Um, landmark, and doing a book signing in November, so the books will be available there. And we continue to approach independent bookstores uh, about carrying the book. And well, we lots of people are interested. That's terrific. I mean, we hope it gains a lot of traction and becomes more widely available. Well, Claudia, um, I, I wanted to ask you a couple of uh, questions about some of the stories that are included in this book. Um, because you said there were a lot of food stories um, about foodways and history in the area. It has a tremendous amount of history, this area. Don't forget, Thomas Jefferson just lived in a county north, right, in uh, in, uh, in Virginia. Virginia. Right. right. Yeah. So that it has this, this history, some of it good, some of it not so great, you know. But it has some wonderful um, history. Tell us what some of the, I don't know, uh, basis for the, the food stories that you have in the book are. Sure. Um, I, I often think that sometimes, you know, being next to Washington, D.C., where history is of international import, sometimes the local history gets overlooked. And having this much land not only provides all the food and recreation, but it also preserves historic sites. And what goes along with those sites are food waste stories. And and the interesting thing, I think, for us was how some of those stories echoed through time. So, for instance, the uh, first um, uh, white European settlers in Maryland uh, grew tobacco. It was a cash crop and enslaved workers did uh, all the labor, and they could live in a state lifestyle, and it was wonderful until the market crashed and the soil was depleted from growing so much tobacco. And so for a time, Montgomery County was, was abandoned. You read accounts of, um, you know, fences falling down and barns abandoned and sons moving to Ohio and Kentucky in search of better land. Well, the Quakers came in and settled and started working on the soil. They used newly available Peruvian guano, and they rotated crops, and they brought fertility back to Montgomery County, and it became quite a prosperous farm community. And, you know, that's the same kind of thing that we see in our farmers today. They're always concerned about their soil. What do they have? What do they need to do to it? How can they build up? Uh, the microorganisms that will make it a fertile place for um, plants and animals. Mm -hmm. And I, I really um, enjoyed learning about that Quaker community because they were a very inventive group of people. Um, one of them, I think it was Isaac Briggs, invented one of the first refrigerators to take his butter from Montgomery County into D.C. markets. It was a wooden bin with a metal box inside, packed around with ice, wrapped in um, a woolen blanket, and then covered with a rabbit fur. 
And he um, found that he could get a better price for his butter at the market because it arrived fresher. And you mentioned um, Thomas Jefferson. He he uh, sent an invitation to Jefferson to look at this refrigerator. And Jefferson, we uh, I found um, the little note that Briggs wrote to him. And Jefferson drew a little bit of a sketch of this refrigerator in the corner of the invitation, and he eventually purchased one. Hmm. And um, his granddaughter, Ellen, uh, wrote during one of their trips, one of the family trips to Poplar Forest, which was one of their other um, plantations, she wrote something which I find kind of funny. She writes, Grandpapa insisted on using that filthy cooler refrigerator, I believe he calls it, which wasted our small stock of ice and gave us butter that run about the plate so that we could scarcely catch it. <laughs> I, I don't think she was as enamored of this refrigerator as her grandfather, Thomas Jefferson, was. But, um, you know, these are the kind of things that you pull out and really bring personality uh, right to the fore. All right. Um, um, Ellen, you, I mean, you actually live... Um, on property in the reserve, correct? Yes. Yeah. Um, and are there still, I mean, there were, I know after the, the development, they kept 500 of the farm operations going. Are there still that many farm operations actually producing or more? Yes, and they're very diversified um, activities uh, from uh, haymaking, which supports the equestrian community. There are quite a, a few equestrian facilities here. Um, there are table crop farmers, commodity farmers, uh, people raising animals for food and fiber, and um, and more. Yes. Interesting. Well, um, I did find a couple little factoids on the on the agricultural reserve, and uh, it one of the facts was that Montgomery County has the most acres planted in berries and pumpkins in the entire <laughs> state. <laughs> so I thought that was, I thought that was pretty good. Um, and the, um, some of the food ways that are, that you have preserved through stories, um, Claudia, you talk about, um, I know Elizabeth Ellicott Lee's domestic cookery, which William Moyes Weaver kind of rewrote for us in a, you know, a facsimile version um, what are some of these, I mean, there were so many different peoples. You mentioned the Quakers, but we know that there were the Pennsylvania Dutch or Germans or, um, a lot of multi-ethnic food ways, both past and I assume probably present. Right? Yeah, that's right. Um, what, uh, William Moyes Weaver, as you mentioned, he points out, you know, that, uh, he traces all the different communities there and some of the, and connects them to, Elizabeth Ellicott Lee's recipes. So, for example, the Germans contributed the fruit butters. The English contributed pies. From Native Americans, she picked up recipes for green corn and succotash. Africans um, brought okra to the table. And, of course, the Quakers were teetotalers, so <clears throat> her book includes a lot of sweets and cakes and puddings and ice creams. And uh, just as with the soil, you know, there's a parallel to today. Montgomery County and the Washington region is very diverse, and that is reflected in the farms. We, um, Tanya Spandla is a 
um, Zimbabwean woman who farms out there, and she she grows um, horned melons and pumpkin leaves for her community. And she, through word of mouth, they find her and, um, you know, buy her produce. There's also a, a Buddhist temple out there, and visitors often um, enjoy the farms and the land around the temple. And one of them uh, at a farm found peppers and made this dish called, um, in Bhutanese, is called emadatse. It's um, a, a kind of a stew of peppers and cheese, like a peppery fondue. Originally, it's made with super hot peppers. Ours is much milder. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a delicious recipe. And so that's what we tried to do, um, pull some of the historic uh, recipes forward. For example, we have a bean soup, which was a, which was a standard dish on the canal boats. But um, we also tried to reflect some of the diversity in the community here. You know, we have dishes like the curry and the... Um, and um, a, a Persian herb omelet, so that people can see that you know um, this this area serves everyone by providing food, and that eating local can also be eating international. No, oh, that's that's incredibly um, important, I think, for us to recognize all these different contributions to all the different food ways that that uh, contributed to the making of this this incredible reserve and. Um, I would like to talk more about uh, the people on the reserve and the recipes. When we come back, we have to take a short break. So stay with us. And we'll have more. This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods. Heritage Foods was founded to sell ancient breeds of livestock and poultry that were becoming extinct, largely because industrial agriculture willfully pushed healthy heritage breeds aside for more profitable, faster-growing animals. Rare heritage breeds are saved when popular demand increases and farmers have the incentive to raise them. This Thanksgiving, we encourage you to buy a turkey from Frank Reese's Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch. Frank's turkeys are 100% purebred heritage, 100% pasture-raised, and 100% antibiotic-free. Turkeys are available in two-pound increments. You choose your size. Don't wait. Pre-order your Heritage Thanksgiving turkey today at heritagefoods.com. Hi, we're back, and I'm speaking with Claudia Casulis and Ellen Letourneau. They are authors of a brand new book that just was released today called Bread and Beauty, A Year in Montgomery County's Agricultural Reserve. And it's a cookbook that uh, brings together so many different uh, pieces of history and stories and, and of course, recipes. Ellen, I wanted to ask you, I, I'm sure, um, I don't know if you're... It, that aware of it, but um, through the book, and I'm sure you have done some research, but um, some of the farmers, I would imagine, have been in the area for generations, correct? Indeed, yeah. yeah. And, yes, uh, they have. And do you, are there some of these older residents, not older residents, older established farms where you've gone to maybe collect some of their stories and their recipes? 
Yes, there are. We um, we feature a number of them. Um, what comes immediately to mind is Gene Kingsbury and his um, his orchard that's not too far from where I am in the reserve. And it's a sixth-generation um, uh, farm story. So they've had that land for six generations and often say that they wouldn't be farming there if it wasn't for the establishment huh. of the reserve. And they uh, they grow apricots, sweet cherries, apples, pears. I know I'm forgetting some things. They have um, uh, quite a few trees and a large variety and um, probably be- and an audience. <laughs> and probably berries and pumpkins, too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's always a pumpkin patch right around the corner. And um, yes, and, and berries to be had. <laughs> Interesting. Um, Ellen, I, or Claudia, I wanted to ask you, you, you touched on um, the Zimbabwean uh, woman's pepper stew, pepper and cheese stew. There are certainly uh, a lot of contributions into the foodways. The African-American, well, with, through slavery, a lot of contributions through the slaves that were living in the area generations ago. Uh, any of this enter into the foodways that are mentioned in the book? Um, <clears throat> I, we do have a recipe for um, some fried chicken, but, you know, that, that actually... Um, I think I, what was remarkable to me was how similar uh, African-American and white farmers uh, handled their produce. They, they were all, you know, growing seasonally. They would sell their market crops and then glean the fields for the community and then do this thing to store the vegetables over the winter. They would dig a big hole, layer it with um, straw and layers of vegetables and straw, layers of vegetables, and then cover the whole thing with dirt, dig a door in it. And that, and then, you know, on through the winter, pull on that all winter to survive uh, the fallow period. And it was that, that technique is described um, on both white and black farms. Hmm. So there were a lot of similarities yeah. um, in the way that they um, treated the land. Right. Well, I'm sure that, uh, I mean, farming techniques, you know, so much have passed by over the years that many of the practices are very common, right? Um, right. And, and Ellen, I, I wanted to, um, to ask you uh, about the, oh, you're, I mean, you're a baker. Are you, you're not a, are you a commercial baker or just, is this just something you do on your own time? Yeah, it's just a home hobby. Just a home hobby. Yes, okay. I do sell. Um, there's a cottage food program in the county, and I do sell at a weekly farmer's market mm-hmm. from spring to fall, my sourdough. Uh, because I wondered how, you know, in the book, I, I haven't had the opportunity to see the finished book yet, but um, so are there, I mean, farmers you always think of of the smell of, you know, fresh baked pies and things wafting through, mm-hmm. the, <laughs> through the air from the porch of a, you know, of a farm. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of baked goods make it into the book. Yes, we both love baking and love baking. So, um, yes, we had to make sure that that wasn't too heavily <laughs> proportioned towards toward baked goods and buds. But yes, absolutely. We even have a res- uh, a recipe for our reserve sourdough because it's kind of a community story as well. The starter gets passed around um, through the community, which is really lovely. All right, uh, Claudia, you had mentioned, I think, when we spoke earlier, something. Oh, about the. Um, you know, the canal, the CNO Canal, the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal that was 
built, I don't know, around the 1830s, right, in the early 1800s. Uh, what that's part right. that played in, in, this, in this reserve, that's right there in Montgomery County, more or less, right? That's right. It runs from Georgetown to um, Ohio, and it's about 200 miles long. And that was an, um, a preservation effort that actually um, kind of paralleled the reserve and just the way the canal itself parallels the reserve and the river. Um, uh, it, for, for many years, it was a real economic engine for the area, um, bringing farm goods down into the city, uh, to Georgetown and the port of Alexandria and beyond. But it, they always had to compete with the B&O Railroad and really never could. And, you know, in the 1920s, I think a flood finally knocked it out as a commercial enterprise. In the 30s, it, the property was transferred to the federal government. Someone proposed building a highway along it, and Justice William O. Douglas um, took a Washington Post reporter with him on a hike. They walked the length of the canal, and of course the Post reporter wrote about the nature and the beautiful sights and the wonderful experience of it, and that prompted the Park Service um, and the federal government to say, okay, this is a national park now. So, it, you know, we were very lucky to have that running alongside, and today um, it's a place for summer campers and hikers and rock climbers and kayakers and bicyclists. And again, that's part of having all that contiguous land. But while it was a commercial enterprise, you had both lock keepers and the canal boats, um, you know, working the whole system. And they each had their own foodways. Um, like I mentioned, um, bean soup was just a standard on the boats, and so we included a recipe for that. But as the boats came down, they would buy pies and cakes from the lock keepers' wives, who um, were very entrepreneurial and, you know, would bake and, uh, to sell their, their baked goods. And they would also buy vegetables from the lock keepers' gardens. And so it was, there was a lot of there was this main trade going on, but there were also these little side trades always happening as well. And so we have um, one of the features in the book is a winter picnic along the canal. And um, we include the bean soup in that meal because mm. it just is so timely and right to that place. Right. Interesting. Well, you mentioned, um, Claudia, about campers and, and bicyclists and things. And Ellen, that was something I wanted to talk to you about. I would imagine, since the area has uh, um, become kind of well well known, and at this point, it, certainly for the local communities, there must be a lot of tourism. Uh, do you have events of, in like tours? Can people go and 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 take a tour of the area? Oh, absolutely, and that's being developed um, more and more as um, as farmers look to diversify the, the types of activities that they can have on their farms, mm -hmm. and that agritourism is becoming more and more popular. So there are there are bike tours organized by different organizations. There are um, nature walks, Sugarloaf Mountain, um, uh, which is at sort of the northern tip of the reserve. It's an incredibly popular place for the whole region for climbing and hiking. And uh, yes, there are a myriad of different ways to come out and experience uh, experience from, you know, from the UPIC um, things to there's a, uh, the county puts on a farm tour in the summer. And then the uh, historic um, 
district put on now a, it's just started a harvest tour in the fall during harvest season to visit um, the farm. So it's, yeah, it's lots and lots of different ways to come out and enjoy it. All right. I saw that Smithsonian um, got involved in, in the area somewhat more towards sugar, uh, sugar loaf, but they offered tour programs um, around there too. So it really is getting on the historic record now um, as, as being a, a place of firsts, one of those other little factoids I found, was that <laughs> Montgomery County was the first county in the U.S. to develop a no-till conservation planting program. Now, that's uh, for people who aren't familiar with farming and tilling the land. I mean, tilling the land used to be a common thing, but um, that, uh, so that surprised me. It's a no-till conservation planting throughout the county. Who Does anyone know? I mean, is that... I um I think I, I think that the farmers sort of um you know strive for that mm-hmm. but each of them from our discussions each of them have a different approach to their land depending on how much land they have what they're farming and what their operation is like. Uh, I would imagine. Well this is uh it's I'm just so glad that this came across my desk that you sent this um you know, proposal of the book to me because it was, it's an area and it's a land reserve that I didn't know about, that I wasn't aware of. And I just, I mean, to set aside a third of a county and make it the largest agricultural reserve is, is really quite impressive. And I think that certainly it is a model for other areas uh, for land use, and I hope that they will follow suit. And I look forward to, to getting my hands on that book and taking a look at the actual recipes and the stories of the people. <laughs> Some of the stories of the people sound just, you know, so, you know, so wonderful. And again, the name of the book is Bread and Beauty, A Year in Mount Com- Montgomery. Uh, I just can't say it. Okay, I'm going to do that over again. Bread and Beauty, A Year in Montgomery County's Agricultural Reserve. And my guests today are the authors Claudia Casulis and Ellen Letourneau. Thank you both very much for joining me. It was a very educational program for me. I learned a lot. Thank you so much. And thank, thank you, you, thank you, Linda. And thank you for listening. This has been another Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.